So we are in the Advent season, as you've been reminded today. And Advent, uh, today it's traditionally celebrated as the four weeks leading up to Christmas. But historically, going back to like the 5th and 6th century, Advent was a series of seven weeks leading up to Christmas. And it wasn't even about uh, Christmas. It was about preparing yourselves for the second coming of Christ. It was a time of, of fasting, of prayer, and of preparation. It was almost uh, similar to, to Lent in, in the, the type of um, like de- devotion that went along with us. And um, Isaiah 2, verse 4, says, He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears and the pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will the, they train for war anymore. Last week we talked about hope. Not optimism, not positive self-talk, not pessimism, but hope, having hope. And the second Sunday of Advent is traditionally we focus on peace. And this, this verse was from the prophet Isaiah before the time of Christ. And, and there was this hope for a peace. And if you got the, 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 the imagery there, if we, if, we were to make, if we were to write Scripture today, we might say that in that day they will melt down their semi-automatics and their high-powered rifles and their stealth bombers and they will become instruments of restoration and healing. Because when Christ returns, there will be no need for the Second Amendment any longer. Um, and so that, that's the picture. It's this anticipation that we anticipate when all hostilities will cease, when the lion and the lamb will lie down together, and, and nations will no longer war, and nations will no longer meddle in elections, right? Uh, maybe that doesn't I don't. I don't know. Apparently that still happens today. Uh, and we're not worried about countries invading other countries. I remember, um, like back in the 80s in elementary school, I feel like, and that's, that's a long time ago, but I feel like there was still talk of like being prepared for nuclear fallout back, back in the 80s, like, like preparing in your classroom, like what was going to happen. But we're waiting for that day when we're not worried about that any longer. Um, now, last week, I shared a, a very heart-wrenching story of Jeff, Jeff and Heather uh, Francis. Uh, Heather, this is the, the family here, Heather was 42. Last year she was diagnosed with a brain tumor. Uh, she went through chemo and radiation, and then it seemed to be in remission. And she went to the hospital a couple weeks ago, and the brain tumor had come back aggressively. And within the same week, she had lost consciousness uh, she had lost her sight. She had lost her ability to respond except for just a weak uh, grasping of her husband's hand if he'd asked her a question. And they had had something throughout their marriage. Uh, they would silently say, I love you to each other, by three squeezes of the hand just when they were together. She was barely able to do that. Mother of five kids, a follower of Jesus. And um, Jeff and I have uh, a ton of mutual friends on Facebook, and they all started posting these posts that Jeff was posting while he was going through this ordeal. He's, he's writing about it, what he's feeling, giving updates on Heather. Uh, and she passed away the day before Thanksgiving. And I read one of the posts last week, um, and he spoke of hope despite what he was going through. And, and I'm going to share another post, and I hesitate to do so because they're heavy. If you were here last week, they're, they're weighty. And Marissa's like, oh, man, here we go again. Um, but that is part of the point of Advent, Advent is a weighty season. It's a time of an anticipation and, and longing, and, and it's just something not right in the world. And so 
I'm going to share one. Uh, I'm going to share one now. It's, it's rather lengthy. And just to prepare you, I'm probably going to share one next week as well, going through Advent. Uh, it, this was, he wrote this uh, three days after she passed away. He said, people keep telling me to write, so I'm writing. I think it's probably helpful for me. And my ultimate goal is to help someone else with whatever they might be facing. These posts uh, used to be intended to give you an update on Heather. Unfortunately, I don't know exactly what she's doing right now. But I do know she's in good hands and cannot be happier and could not be happier than she is at this moment. That brings so much comfort and joy to me. So instead of updating you on Heather, I guess I'll update you on me, how I am doing. There isn't a word that is adequate enough to answer that question. On a side note, I'm sort of annoyed because my son just sat down next to me to get help on his algebra test. Algebra wasn't on my to-do list today, but here we are doing algebra. Other than my algebra annoyance, I am numb, tired, sad, scared, not in control, hopeful, loved, peaceful. I'm also laughing at my youngest nephew who is trying his best to distract Andrew from his algebra. I'm simply trying to be the same person I've always been. My faith in a risen Jesus is the centerpiece of my life. It's the foundation from which everything grows and flows. People have expressed admiration for how I've handled this the last few weeks, and I certainly appreciate the encouragement, but there's a couple of things I want you to know. First, I don't really have any clue what I'm doing or what I'm supposed to do. There's the practical things, like Heather has paid all of our bills for more than a decade. I had no idea how to access our bank account or how much money we had. That's some trust right there. Um, she took, care of all, she took care of all that. Then there's just the fact that I'm supposed to learn how to live without my best friend. My kids are supposed to learn how to live without their mom. I, I don't mean this to be my complaining session. The point is simply that this is all new, and I'm not sure what this all means. Heather and I lived in a comfortable routine for many years. My routine is no longer my routine, and nothing about this is comfortable. Second, despite the fact uh, that I feel lost without, without her, I have this unexplainable peace. I don't know what the future is going to be like. I barely have the next day or, or two planned out. I like to feel like I'm in control, but I'm not at all. But yet in the middle of the chaos, I feel peace. This whole thing reminds me of the story of Jesus and the disciples sailing through the night in a terrible storm. The disciples are in the boat with Jesus. They're working feverishly to try to save the boat. This group, which includes some expert fishermen, are freaking out. In other words, these guys have had seen some bad storms before. They had experience, but this was something different. And what is Jesus doing? He's sleeping, completely at rest. The disciples and his kids in the boat with him call out to Jesus, Lord, don't you care if my wife dies? Don't you care if our mom dies? But in this particular story, Jesus doesn't wake up. He doesn't calm the storm. The wife and mom die. So where was Jesus? He was still in the boat the whole time. He wasn't sleeping, but he was still completely at rest. Jesus could sleep in the storm because outside circumstances didn't affect his inner self. Jesus wasn't dependent on whether or not everything around him was okay to be at peace. He's able to have peace even when the storm rages. Sometimes the winds overtake the boat. Sometimes the boat goes down. Sometimes the wife dies. Sometimes the mom cancers kills her. But what is Jesus doing? He is still in the boat. He's still at rest. He still knows who he is, and he is at peace. So how exactly do I have peace in the midst of this? What's the secret? There is no secret, really. I'm not the one with peace. The, one, the peace I have comes from Jesus in me. He's the one with peace. I'm just the one that is totally convinced that he is with me and he does care. The disciples asked, teacher, don't you care if we drowned? They wondered if he cared. They doubted. 
I have lots of doubts, but I don't doubt that Jesus cares. He cares if I'm drowning. He cares if my wife is sick. He cares that my kids have lost their mom. Jesus is right in the middle of the situation, and he cares. And because I'm convinced that Jesus is with me and Jesus cares for me, I have peace. I don't earn it. I don't deserve it. I didn't really even seek it. I just have it. And the more I think about it, the more I believe the peace comes from the assurance that Jesus is with me and he cares I don't know what you might be facing right now or what the future holds, but I know no matter what boat you find yourself in, Jesus is with you and he cares. He cares for you. He's not a loving God who is far off and cannot be reached. No, he's right there. He's right there because he cares. So many people have let me know that they're praying for our family. I appreciate that so much. People have donated to our GoFundMe campaign. Others have dropped off meals. It's comforting to know that not only is Jesus with me and not only does he care, but our family has scores of people in the boat with us who also care. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for caring. Thank you for being like Jesus. Advent, peace, waiting, expecting, attention, longing. Usually I reserve this heavy stuff for the end of the service. I thought we'd go heavy first. And from here on out, it's all sunshine and roses. Uh, not exactly, but I, we've gone into the valley, and I do hope to bring us out of that. Um, so today we continue our series, Living in Between. And I just need to recap quickly what we talked about last week so we're all on the same page. If you missed last week, it was like this multimedia experience. I had a whiteboard and a Sharpie, and I had handouts. Um, so I'm just going to get us caught up. A little bit. So in the time leading up to Jesus, there was this expectation that God was going to step into the scene and do something. That God was going to bring this old sinful world to an end. And I have a diagram here of, of what we, we drew last week. Uh, so the timeline going from the left to the right, that is time. This is how the, the, the Jewish mind saw, saw history. Um, and, and the thought was that at, at some point, and there was this fervor that was growing that God was right where it says the end, that line comes down, and was going to not so much split history in half, but start something new. The coming age when God would make everything right. God, it would be God's time. God's time where there'd be righteousness and, and wholeness and resurrection and, and spirit. Not what we currently experience. It's, it's darkness and, and sickness and rebellion and uh, idolatry and the expectation that the Messiah was coming at the end of, of time. Um, and so that's, that was the expectation. And at that time, there was this guy, John the Baptist. He steps on the scene and he says, repent. We, the end is almost here. Like we're not quite to that line, but we are just right before it. The Messiah, God is coming. God's kingdom is coming. Get ready. Prepare yourself. So John the Baptist, that was his message. And then Jesus, his ministry goes public right after that. And, um, and Jesus his entire ministry in life was all about the kingdom of God. The next time you read through the Gospels, look for all the times it says kingdom or it talks about uh, this kingdom. In fact, um, Jesus' teaching focused on the kingdom of God. In just the Gospel of Matthew, there's 28 chapters, Jesus mentions the kingdom 49 times in 28 chapters. Like it is always what Jesus is talking about. Um, when the gospel writers, they summarize the life and teachings of Jesus, it is about the kingdom of God. Mark uh, chapter 1, we read this last week. This is after John, that's John the Baptist, was put in prison. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come. 
He said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So Jesus, Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is, is coming among you right now. But there's some misunderstandings that we have. One is that this kingdom is not a place. It's a time. Okay, It's not a, it's not a place. It's a time. So when is the kingdom of God? And the time is now. And, and there's some other, another misunderstanding is that God's kingdom is both present and future. God's kingdom is present among us, but it's not yet fully here. And so scholars will sometimes refer to it as the already, not yet. Already, Jesus has come into the world, but it's not yet consummated what God is going to to do. Um, And so, again, the Jews thought God was going to come into history with this cataclysmic event, and it was going to be all good after that. Jesus didn't meet their expectations. Because when he came, there wasn't that he came as a baby in a manger, and he came serving, and he didn't come wielding his own, his own power. Um, and so we had a second diagram. I believe you want to put up the, uh, the next one. The next one. And so instead of it being a split in history, we believe that currently we live between the ages, between the ages, so where this present what we call like time of the flesh, Satan's time, is still continuing. Jesus came, that's where the birth of Jesus, where it was inaugurated, and one day it's all going to end, and, and this old present world um, and, and the, is going to be redeemed and renewed, and God is going to make all things new. And so for us, we live between the times of Christ's first coming and his second coming, and, and sometimes, uh, sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad, um, and the challenge for us is that we have to live in the radical middle of between the times, between the times. And, and let me just show you an example, and I shared one of these last week. I'll share a couple more, and then we'll, we'll dive in to where we want to get this week. But right now, in following Jesus, we are going to suffer in our, in our faith, and not necessarily from other people pressing us, but when I say no to my selfish desires— there's a little bit of personal suffer, suffering that goes on a little bit. Um, when, I, when I give beyond my means, there's a little bit of suffering there. There's, there's times where we will suffer uh, for following Jesus. So, some places in the world, the, the suffering is very apparent. It's physical. It's tangible. Um, just last, uh, I believe it was last Sunday, there was a, a church in, uh, I'm going to forget now. I sent it. Uh, on the west coast of Africa, where, 14, where the people were taken out of the church, all the men and the boys were laid down, and they were shot just last Sunday. This, this is re- that's suffering for their faith. At the same time, the Bible says that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us. Like, so there's suffering, and there's power at uh, the same time. One of my favorite verses in, in Scripture is 1 John 3, verse 2, and it puts it like this. Dear friends, now already... We are children of God, and what we will be has not yet, not yet, see there's my language again, now but not yet, been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's that's amazing. That is tremendous. When he appears, we will see him as he is. Already, we are children of God, but we are not yet what we're going to be. So there's this this tension, even even in our own our own faith as we, as we follow Jesus, are we going to be different in the future kingdom than we are now? Well, yes, yes and no. 
because we are already what we are going to be, children of God. But we are not yet what we're going to be when we see Jesus because we're going to be changed. We're, you're like, Matthew, that is, that's confusing. Yes, there's some tension there. I get it. Um, and sometimes we have to just step into the tension, and it's unresolved. Um, that is how the story of Jeff and Heather, that is how Jeff can have such hope and peace despite losing his best friend because we are living between the times and we have this hope based on what has already happened in Christ but was not, we have not yet received fully, the already and the not yet. And so today I want to look at this overlap of the times, of this, this old fallen world and God's time and what this in-between time looks like for us. And I thought we'd start by looking at a few scriptures that gives us an, an idea of what that looks like. And I've got various scriptures today. They'll, they'll be on the screen. If you just wanted to write down the, the reference, you can always check, check my work later. All right? Don't take my word for it. Uh, Galatians 1 verse 3. This is Paul writing. Um, this is after the time of Jesus had died and been resurrected. Paul writes to some believers, he says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to rescue us from the present evil age. According to the will of God, our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, the old uh, King James Version says this present evil world. Now, it doesn't mean, and I, th I think that can uh, mislead us, it doesn't mean like this world, my, my physical body is, is bad, or wicked, it means that the regime that's currently in power is evil. The regime that currently has sway in the world, the present evil age. Um, so who is in power? John, in John chapter 12, Jesus says, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. 2 Corinthians 4 says, the God of this age out of this age, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the first thing about this between time is that in this current present world, the ruler of this age is Satan. The ruler of this age is he is the God of this age. He is the prince of this world. And now we modern folks, post-enlightenment, we, uh, we don't like to think about the we don't consider the boogeyman to be real, for Satan to be real. Uh, however, after the Enlightenment, we had the 20th century, which was all kinds of evil. I mean, just World War II alone, 70 million people died. 3% of the world's population wiped out. And so you're going to tell me that that evil is just because we haven't quite got the education we need. Or because there's... Uh, because we are, there's still inequities in the world, that's why the, this grand evil exists. Uh, now, we should educate and we should do work on the inequities. Uh, I think when we read Scripture, we tend to think there's two actors on the stage. It's God and it's us. And, and all, all of the issues in the world, all the oppression, all the corruption, the injustice, the exploitation, uh, the Book of Common Prayer has this, has this prayer that says, from plague pestilence and famine, from battle, murder, and sudden death, good Lord, deliver us. And I think when we see a list like that, we think of, man, people have screwed this world up. Yes, we have definitely helped screw the world up, messed things up uh, 
quite a bit, quite a bit. However, the New Testament doesn't see reality as just two actors on the stage, God and us. There was a third actor on the stage, and he's given multiple names in Scripture, uh, Satan, the devil, Beelzebub, the ruler of this world, the prince, the power of the air. And for the time being, it has been given to this enemy to rule this world in some capacity. Indeed, all of creation is enslaved to sin and to Satan. And we live in enemy-occupied territory. We live in enemy-occupied territory. And I just want to give you one uh, brief picture from the Gospel of Mark. Mark is writing about Jesus. He's, he's been traveling around with his disciples. He comes to a, uh, comes to a place, uh, gets, out, gets out of the boat. They've been cr- crossing the, the Sea of Galilee. And there is this, well, it's Mark chapter 5. I got uh, verses. We're going to go through it. Uh, Mark chapter 5, verse 3. Well, it says, uh, starting in verse 2, there was a man with an impure spirit came to meet him. And this man lived in the tombs. No one can bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus has said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? He said, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on a nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs and allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down a steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave the region, and I think you would too. Like, what kind of man is this that even the evil spirits obey him? And, and, and I think, again, with our modern mind, reading that back, we want to say, well, that person probably wasn't demon-possessed. It was probably some sort of mental illness, uh, maybe schizophrenia, which even if it was, Jesus to heal schizophrenia in a time when there was no psychotropic drugs, ama- amazing. But Mark's, Mark's point is not that this was a one-on-one healing. Mark's point is that God in Jesus has stepped onto the scene and the powers that be have been scattered, have no authority where Jesus is. Um, and, and this, so there's three actors on the stage. The, the, the demons in this man, they act independent of the man. They answer for the man. Um, and they are the first ones, ironically, in the entire Gospel of Mark to recognize that Jesus is the Son of God. Up to this point, Mark is like, for whatever reason, his, he's like, let's keep it secret. Jesus says he's writing, don't tell anybody. No one else has identified it. This demon knew who the Son of God was. So there is this, this, com- there's this confrontation between God and Satan, and Jesus wins. Satan is the ruler of this age in this overlap of the ages. The second thing is that there was a battle raging in the entire cosmos. There was a battle 
raging. Um, we can't see it often. We can see how it works itself out in injustices and um, oppression. But it's hard for us to, to see, and so I, sometimes I think we don't, we don't think about it. Um, but when Jesus was under trial, he stands before Pilate, and he says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not of this cosmos. In other words, he's saying that the kingdom, the sphere of the power of God has entered the sphere of this cosmos. And so we live in this cross section where the kingdom of God has come in, but there was still a ruler of this age. There's, there's, there's a battle going on. Um, and, and God entered the world in Jesus Christ. And I think... When, some, when we, we talk about the end of the world and the end of all things, like, there's been some in recent years whose tendency then is to be like, oh, to hell with it, literally. Like, it's all going to hell. Why, why should I care about the injustices in the world? Like, God's going to come back, and then it's all going to be better, so let's just gather up and all just take care of one another, bind up our wounds, and, and we'll be fine. Let's just kind of stick together. But if... If Jesus was willing to come into the world, then I think as his followers, he expects us to stay present in this world that he came in to save and to do work and to do justice and to love mercy. Uh, so there's, there's this battle raging. But here, here's the good news is that Jesus has already won the ultimate victory. Jesus has already won the ultimate victory by his death and resurrection. It is the means and it is the proof of his victory. It is how he won the victory, and it is the proof that he won the victory. Uh, I might just get a little excited today. John 14, verse 30 says, and this again, Jesus, I will not say much more to you. Jesus is getting ready. He knows he's about to, um, to be crucified. The prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me. But he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what the Father has commanded me. He has no hold over me. Uh, Ephesians 1 verse 18, this again after the resurrection, this is Paul writing uh, to believers in Ephesus. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And by his incomparably great power for us, who believe the power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also the age to come. You see this, this already not yet terminology. It's all through scripture if you have eyes to see it. Uh, God has placed all things under his feet, and appointed him head over everything for the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Already Jesus is victorious. Colossians 2.15, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You see, the powers and authorities thought they were triumphing over Christ on the cross. But no, no, no. All the time, Christ was triumphing over them through the cross. And the good news is that at last, God is king Jesus is Lord, and that the, the dark powers in this world have been defeated. And the invitation for us is to join the party. Like, join the party of God's kingdom. And now, that might change everything about you, but the invitation is join the kingdom of God. Jesus is Lord. So Jesus has already won the victory. The last thing I want you to take away today is that our battle isn't over. 
Jesus is victorious, but the battle isn't over. We, we don't just get to go on vacation, kick our feet up, be like, Jesus is king. I got nothing else to do. Like, he has done everything. I'm just going to bide my time until he comes back. We don't just wait for the end. I mean, uh, and I, I think we get this individually. Like, when we come to, come to faith, we, we want to grow in our faith. We want to, um, you know, theologians talk about words like uh, sanctification, becoming more like Jesus. And we understand that personally. But even as a body, corporately, we're also to be doing the work of Christ in the world. Like there, there, is, there is work to be done. There is battle to be fought. Um, too, many, too many scriptures. Let me just, real quick, Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. Those are fighting words. Those aren't vacation words. Right? Uh, those are fighting words. Like prepare yourself for the conflict as we live between the ages. Like God's kingdom has already come, but it's not yet fully here. And so there's work for us to do. There's this tension of the already, not yet. Um, so I want to just, I'm going to close with a final, a final illustration. And this is not a, an illustration that's original with me. But there was a, a French theologian about 70 years ago who really brought this idea of the already, not yet to prominence. Um, his name was Oscar Coleman, and he talked about D-Day in World War II. Does anybody know the date of D-Day? I heard June 19th. With much confidence, everybody cried out. It's all right. Uh, I wouldn't have known it if I wasn't speaking today. June 6, 1944. What happened on D-Day? The largest armada in human history. So if you know your World War facts at all, in 1940, the Germans had come into France and they'd conquered Paris in 1940. And for four years, Paris was under foreign occupation by the, the German Nazi regime. And so on D-Day, an army of 150,000 strong split into five armies between the, the U.S., Canada, Britain. They came across the English Channel uh, and landed on the, the northern coast of France. And, and the battle was, you've probably seen movie, Saving Private Ryan, like the, the, the first, the opening scene is, uh, is D-Day. And there were five, like 5,000 ships that went across from England um, to France. There was 11,000 uh, airplanes of, of some sort that were provided cover for the Allied forces. Um, and the, the weather was bad, and they were taking gunfire as they stormed the coast. And it was a 20-hour battle, but at the end of the day, the Allies had won a victory. And after that day, there was never a doubt who was going to win the battle. Like, the war had been decided on June 6, 1944. Heavy casualties took place. But that was the beginning of the end of the war at that point. And after the invasion of Normandy, there was never a question about the outcome of the war, never a question. It was determined at D-Day. It was the death nail in the Nazi, Nazi regime. What was the next great event in World War II? What do we, what do we call that? V-Day. And we have two because we fought on two fronts. V Most people 
like if you maybe knew D-Day, you don't know V-Day, though it was the day of victory when truces were signed. But uh, when, we, when we look at, I wouldn't say which day was more important, but after D-Day, it was 11 months until the ultimate victory came. Thousands were still killed between D-Day and V-Day. But there was never a question that, that V-Day was coming. The tide had turned. And, and that's how the New Testament understands the kingdom of God. Jesus, coming of Jesus, it was a planting of a flag on enemy territory that says, this is my territory. And right now we're in between. We're waiting for victory, and we're in that in-between time. We know the victory is coming, even though at the moment it may not look like it. And our entire existence is lived in the certainty of the future based upon what has already happened in the past. So there isn't a question of what's going to happen in the end. The only question is when will it happen? There's never been a promise that we won't be sick. There's never been a promise that we won't die. There were more U.S. forces died after D-Day than before D-Day. More died after D-Day than before D-Day. Uh, there's still battles to be fought. We have been promised. What we have been promised is that we win no matter what. And so this isn't a call to triumphalism like, uh, like we, we win now. But it's a call to discipleship and following the way of Jesus. We win if we live. We win if we die. We win in suffering. We win in rejoicing. We win because Jesus has already done the winning for us. And it, so it's just a, simply a matter of bringing it to a conclusion. And what Christ has done is he has invited us into the mop-up operation. We have been invited into the mop-up operation. And, and in the mop-up operation, it may cost us our lives. But who cares? Because he's already one. What does my life matter to me if he's already one? That's right. If what has happened in the past is going to be fulfilled in the future. Matthew, you're crazy. You're crazy talking like that. No, I'm Christian. I'm New Testament. And the future has already entered the present age. God has triumphed. He has already secured my life. And he's calling us to live out the future in the present age. And we live between this time by the power of the Holy Spirit. And at times, the, the ethics and our, the values of, of the coming kingdom are going to be in opposition with the current regime. At times, we have been called not to seek power, but to give up power. We've been called not to hold grudges. We forgive. We haven't been called to build wealth, but to give it away. We don't fight for our survival. We don't lash out when we're attacked. We love our enemies. We don't have to be secure in our own existence any longer because God's rule has come. We win no matter what happens because Jesus has won. We're going to do something a little different today before communion. I've known this sermon was coming for a while, and I was like, oh, I can't wait to talk about D-Day and V-Day. Like, that's going to be good. And I was uh, driving back from work. I was on I-70, and I had come across this song. And Najee's going to lead us in, in just a moment. And, um, and it's rush hour. Traffic's not moving. And I'm, I'm thinking through, what does it mean that Jesus already has the victory? Like, I wonder... Like, who in the Hills Church is maybe is struggling? Like, saying, Matthew, you're talking about victory, but 
like my life is in chaos. Like my, my relationships are, where is the victory in that? Where is the victory for, for Jeff when his wife Heather passed away? And that is the tension. So I was I'm thinking about this and thinking how God wants to bring freedom for our church, for people who are part of our church. I heard this song and I'd heard it a couple times. And, uh, and then, like, I just start weeping in rush hour. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. You have a moment with God. You're like, God, not right now. I'm driving. I can't see. So I was driving by the Spirit. I don't even know what was happening. Uh, and, and the words are, the war is over. You've already won. The storm is over. You've already won. The pain is over. You've already won. And our song will be, we're victorious because you're victorious. And the other song says, I don't have to worry, I don't have to fear, because my victory is near. Your victory is near. And so I want to encourage you today that Jesus is victorious. And whatever, man, like, life, life is hard. Some, like, it, you know what I'm talking about? Life, maybe you don't even want to go to work tomorrow. You're like, Matthew, that's every Monday. Okay. <laughs> but maybe this week there's just something more that's like, man, I, well, there's a court case coming up. There's something and you're like, I need to understand the victory. Of, I need the victory of Jesus. I know it's coming in the future, but I need something in my life right now to, to break. I need some freedom in my life. So before we take communion, I'm going to invite you to stand. Now she's going to lead us. And as he sings the song, would you just cry out to Jesus. Say, Jesus, I believe you've won. I need the victory.